This is an SBC Media Partners production. Swung on, hit high and deep. Right field. Good at feet. Good at feet. It is out of Phillies fans, these are your glove stories with Murph. Let's check in with Greg Murphy. Murph, you got a special guest, huh? Hi, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Glove Stories with Murph. It is so good to have you here. And we thought it would be fun uh, to kind of turn the tables a little bit. We've talked to so many players and coaches here on the podcast over the last couple of months, and it has been great. But we thought, hey, why not take a look at it from a different perspective? Maybe from the, well, the guys that are writing the Glove Stories themselves. And one of the great writers and great sports fans in Philadelphia uh, many of you know him as uh, in his connection to football, but we welcome in Ray Didinger, who is going to be here to tell us some of the glove stories that uh, he saw with his own two eyes over the years. And Ray, first of all, thanks for being here. And I know on a baseball podcast, people are like, Ray Didinger, well, what's what's Ray doing there? But but believe me, by the end of this session, I think people are going to understand your connection to baseball in the city is pretty strong. Pretty much. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, you know, like everybody else that grew up in the city, I grew up a Phillies fan, grew up a baseball fan. Uh, when I was first introduced to newspapers, it was writing football. And I've spent most of the last 50 years writing about football. But um, I had a chunk of time there where I was the general columnist for the Philadelphia Bulletin, which meant that it was the late 70s into the 80s. So yeah. if you were a sports columnist in Philadelphia, you you knew you were writing a lot of baseball because that was a team that was in the postseason all the time and you know won the first World Series in this city's history. So uh, you know I was I was right there in the front row when all that was happening. Yeah, and you know, I, and I'll take you back even to to the beginning of your fandom because growing up in Philadelphia, uh, as I did, you know, I'm a little younger than you, but different era. But the the feeling I think of watching Phillies baseball for a long span was. Wow, this is this can be frustrating. This can be this can be tough uh, to to be a baseball fan in this city. Um, and then things, you know. So as a kid, you you felt those emotions, right? Did you not? I mean, the the teams sure. uh, they struggled. Oh sure. Uh, well, nineteen sixty four was uh, a, an experience unlike anything else in my lifetime. Uh, it was, um, you know, anybody that lived through it, um, they'll never forget it. You will never forget September, October, 1964. Yeah. Uh, and um, I mean, it was real. Uh, I, in, the, in my book, you know, I, I write about that. Yes. Uh, September 64 was, was when I entered college. I was just starting at Temple University in September of 64. Uh, and like the, my first day of classes at Temple was like the, the night the Chico Ruiz stole home and start at the 10 game losing streak. Uh, and it put me in such a funk right? Um, that, uh, well, I write about it in the book. I almost yeah. flunked out of school because I, I, mean, I almost flunked out of Temple my first semester because that whole September, October thing just so took over my life that I couldn't possibly concentrate on class. I fell so far behind in class. I, I went on academic probation. It came about this close to being booted out the front door on the Broad Street, probably right into the draft. I mean, that's, you want to talk about what it was like to go through the 1964 <laughs> collapse? Believe me, I lived it. 
You certainly did. And the book, of course, Finished Business, uh, My 50 Years of uh, Headlines, Heroes, and Heartaches uh, is the new book written by Ray Dinger. We're going to get into some of the great stories that are in there uh, in regards to baseball. I mean, obviously, it covers uh, your entire career and and even more than just the big four sports, a lot of the things that uh, you've been able to do. But uh, to hear you talk about 64, uh, I can imagine that many folks uh, in and around Philadelphia had had a similar experience at that time, whether you were a freshman in college or you were a 30-year-old uh, father of two trying to get your, your kids, uh, you know, to, to enjoy the game of baseball. 64, it, it still lingers in this town to this day. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, when people talk about uh, Philadelphia, you know, that uh, Negadelphia thing, it, it, you talk about how the fans here, they always assume that the worst is going to happen. Yeah. Um, honestly, I trace it back to 64. I really do. I mean, if you if you were a Philadelphian, if you were a Philadelphia sports fan and lived through that, um, you do think the sky is falling. You know, and if things start off looking really good for your team, you won't, you just assume they're going to go bad. It's, yeah. it's it, it just, I mean, the scars of that year stay with you. Um, and the thing about it, Murph, was, you know, unless you really kind of lived it day to day, like we did as fans, you can't really appreciate how devastating it was. I mean, it was a year when the Phillies hadn't been good for a decade. You know, the whiz kids kind of came and went. And then from the middle of the 50s into the 60s, the Phillies were just terrible. Mm. Uh, but 1964 started, and it was like kismet. I mean, everything from the beginning was great. I mean, uh, and as a fan, somebody who had been living through the bad years, you just kind of had that attitude, no, this can't last. This No, can't last. They're in first place now, but no, no, it's not going to work. But the thing was, stuff kept happening, you know, Jim Bunning pitches the perfect game. You know, Johnny Callison hits a walk-off home run to win the All-Star game. Yeah. You know, the team had three three triple plays that year. You know, Dick Allen wins Rookie of the Year. I mean, one thing after another is piling up, and all of a sudden you get to September, they're six and a half games up, and finally all of that doubt that you had, that now nah, this ain't going to happen, this ain't going to happen, all of a sudden you say, hey, guess what? It really is. This really is the year. And right at that moment, right at the moment when you began to believe was when the bottom fell out. I mean, it was it was the cruelest. It was the cruelest summer that a sports fan could ever imagine. And, you know, I I lived that as a fan. Believe me, I lived that as a fan because and my my grandfather who owned a bar in southwest Philadelphia, where I spent a lot of my time as a kid growing up. Um, was full of baseball fans. So they, I lived it with all of those guys. Um, and I, I mentioned in the book, there's a story where one day it was right in the middle of the collapse, right in the middle of it. And you walk in the bar and it's all these same guys. It's a typical Southwest Philly bar. It's the same right. guys in the same stools every single day. Uh, <laughs> what, and it's normally a very happy, convivial kind of place, but not then. Um, during that streak, every, all the guys were in their usual places, but there wasn't, it was, it was you could have heard a pin drop. It was silence in there. And one day a guy walks in, total stranger. We had never seen him before. Obviously didn't know anything about baseball. Comes in to use a cigarette machine, gets his cigarettes, walks over to the jukebox and drops a quarter <laughs> in the jukebox and plays, I'll never forget it. 
<laughs> Everybody Loves Somebody by Dean Martin. <laughs> and the th- it, ju- it just starts to play, you know, everybody it just, and one of the guys at the end of the bar said, turn that bleep off. And this guy had no, what, you, no, you don't like Dean Martin? <laughs> and, and the bartender, Joe Donnelly, came out from behind the bar and unplugged the jukebox. Oh my God. And, and the jukebox stayed unplugged for the rest of the baseball season. So yeah, if you're talking about what 64 meant to Philadelphia sports fans, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good capsule of it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll like Dean Martin. If he can, if he's a left-handed pitcher, they can get one of these guys out. Right. They, then we'll like him. Th- that'll be okay with us. Yeah. It's, yep. it's a, it's a great story. Uh, and you know, it's funny. Cause I, as I listened to the way you describe it um, in, 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 in a similar way, I was 21 when in 93, when the Phils were going through that magical season, you know, you talk about a decade of or more than a decade of futility um, and, and you get to 93 and it was the same thing in the city. No one thought sure. that they were going to be able to hold on. And and uh, you had this lovable group of guys that uh, were cast off from from each and every uh, you know corner of the country. And here they were doing exactly what they did. And, and it really was a magical season, unlike 64. They finished the job and get into the postseason. But still, at the end. It's still a, it's still a tragedy at the end when when Joe Carter swings and and ends uh, that that dream. Um, I guess the difference maybe uh, Ray is that that '93 team they took us all the way there because those guys are still beloved. They're still very much sure. part of of our baseball fabric here in Philadelphia. '64, um, there are no happy memories at that point. I mean, you know, it, it, there just aren't. There's nothing to to hang your hat on at that point. No, it, uh, it was, it was brutal. I mean, it was brutal and it was palpable. I mean, you felt it on the streets of Philadelphia. You felt it. Um, I mean, I remember those rides on the Broad Street subway um, in September of 64 when I was riding up to, to school. Um, you got on the Broad Street subway in the morning and there, there wasn't a sound. I mean, nobody talking. I mean, people looked like they were, uh, it was like, it was like the walking dead. You know, and uh, and I a lot of it had it wasn't it, I mean it wasn't all the Phillies, but it sure set the mood for the city, uh, and uh, and I re- I remember I wasn't the only one I wasn't the only one at Temple that had trouble paying attention in class that year. You know, sociology didn't seem all that important. You know, <laughs> when all you knew was that you know Bunning and Short were pitching back to back nights, and Dennis Bennett had a sore arm, and Johnny Callison was running 104 fever, and um, and it just felt like your world was about ready to come to an end because at that point we really did believe they were going to go. At that point we really did believe it was their year, and it was their year until it wasn't. Until it wasn't, yeah. Uh, it's it it is it's amazing how it still it still hangs in this city. But there would be better times to come, and and sure. it would take a while. And and by that time you had graduated Temple. You did not fail out. You graduated, no. got that degree. Uh, you uh, worked uh, in uh, at, for the Delaware County Times first, right? That was your 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 first assignment, and then uh, quickly over to the Philadelphia Bulletin. Um, and uh, folks who grew up here in Philadelphia, I certainly do remember the Bulletin. Um, and so you're you're now a part of this fabric of the city and, and and now telling the stories of these teams and in the early 70s to mid 70s things started to get better for the mm-hmm. Phils. the you know the the carpenter family uh owned the team at the time and uh 
there were there were some good players coming into town, and there was this feeling that these guys could win. Yet sure. they didn't. They kept you, falling yeah. short. And you were you were in those clubhouses. Tell us uh, a little bit I, about that. I was, I was, and uh, I kind of saw it coming uh, because in the uh, in the early seventies. 1970, uh, you, you mentioned I was the bulletin and the sports editor put me on the Eagles. Uh, so I started covering the Eagles in 1970. I was 23 years old. I was the youngest uh, NFL beat man in the country. Um, and Eagles training camp then was at Albright College, which was yeah. up in Reading. So not a whole lot to do on summer nights in Reading, Pennsylvania. So um, after I finished writing, going to Eagles practice, writing my story, uh, if the Reading Phillies were home, I would go, you know, I would go and I would buy a ticket and I would sit in the stands uh, and the, the ball and the ballpark was just down the street from the hotel where I was staying. And so this was 70, 71, 72. So at that time they had Larry Boa and Bob Boone and Mike Schmidt and Greg Lazinski and all those guys were playing in Reading then. So I saw them on their way up. Uh, and it was pretty obvious watching those guys that, you know, the Phillies have the makings of something here. You know, I mean, I, I didn't say, oh, this is a World Series team. I can't say that I had that kind of clairvoyance. Uh, but watching those guys, you said, yeah, they, they got the makings of something here. So by 1976, when uh, I became a columnist, um, when the, our columnists at that point, Jim Barniak and Sandy Grady, left the paper, um, they shockingly gave me the column. Uh, and so that's when I finally got my chance to go over and begin writing a lot of baseball. And that was right at the time that that team turned the corner and went yeah. to the playoffs and went on that, went on that run where they, you know, they were the best team in the national league. Didn't always win in the postseason, but in terms of night in and night out, I think they were the best team in the national league. Yeah. And in the book, uh, you mentioned that, um, well, you, you kind of break down who you think the best Philadelphia athletes that, you ever got a chance to see and i think i i was surprised i think most people would be surprised and i hope i'm not giving away too much here but uh, that you say that third baseman for the philadelphia phillies number one that that you got a chance and and the relationship that he had mike had with um with the city was not always a great one but yet his play on the field superseded all of that sure um yeah i felt like i if i was going to do the book if I was if I was going to do a book about my 50 years of writing sports in Philadelphia, it kind of would have been a cop out for me not to pick who I thought was the best athlete. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of felt like it had to be in there, um, and so I really thought about it. And you know, in 50 years, I covered a lot of great ones. You know, yeah. um, and if you want to put in Joe Frazier and Smarty Jones, you could do that too. Uh, but you know, I mean, I covered the Broad Street Bullies. I saw Bobby Clark. I saw Bernie Perron. Certainly saw a lot of football. So I went through all those Eagles teams and Reggie White, and Randall Cunningham, and all of those guys, and Dr. J, and a lot of great athletes. Um, and I really thought about it. I gave it a lot of thought, but I, I kept coming back to the conclusion it had to be Mike Schmidt. I mean, he was he was best athlete I covered in this city, in my opinion. Um, think the best third baseman in the history of baseball. I think that's pretty clear in terms of all around. And uh, um, yeah, and we weren't we weren't buddies by any means because Mike, you know, Mike wasn't buddies with anybody in the media, really. Uh, I mean, he was a guy that kind of kept his distance, still true today, uh, um, but just a great player. I mean, the one stat, and I went back, like I saw him play every day 
going back to Reading, actually, all the way through his career. So, and, and he was so great, you kind of took his greatness for granted. You know, that's kind of the definition of greatness. You yes. know, you kind of yes. take him for granted because he's great on a regular basis. But when I went back and looked at his stats, Murph, his stats just blew me away. And then the one that really I found staggering, in fact, I had to look it up a couple of times and say, wait a minute, that can't be right, was he won the National League Home Run Championship eight times. Yeah. He was the National League Think Home Run that. Champion eight times. And I look back through all of baseball history, the only other player, the only other player in the history of baseball that won his league home run title more was Babe Ruth right. uh, back in the dead ball era. Uh, in the so-called modern era of baseball, nobody, not Hank Aaron, not Bob Barry Bonds, not, nobody won their league championship in home runs as many years as he did. To do that eight times is an amazing feat. I mean, I don't know if we're going to see it again, but we saw it here in Philadelphia. So, yeah, that combined with the 10 gold gloves and everything. Yeah, I mean, he was he was just great. Uh, I mean, he was really, really great. And when I when I when I got to the the end of that chapter, I wrote a lot about the interview I got with him the year that he went to the Hall of Fame when uh, he and Rich Ashburn were going in together. Uh, and I was still at the Daily News. And they decided they wanted to put a special pullout section honoring the two guys. And they asked me to get the two of them together to do a joint interview about their lives and their careers and all that stuff. So we did it one day down in uh, Florida. You know, uh, Rich was still alive and doing the, uh, doing the broadcast and Mike was living down there. So we arranged for Mike to meet us at the ballpark one afternoon when the Phillies were playing that night. And so I got the opportunity. They put us in a, one of the uh, football locker rooms down there that wasn't in use anymore. So we had, I had Mike Schmidt and Rich Ashburn all to myself for uh, for a whole afternoon, wow. just sitting there talking baseball. And that was that you talk about career highlights. That was one of them. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. And uh, it, there's another special pullout section that I'm going to ask you about in a little bit uh, that I'm really eager to hear you tell a story about that, uh, that you were assigned to, but let, let's stay on Mike for just one second, because you know, you had an interesting, you know, seat in history. Uh, Mike was this great player, but so often didn't connect with the Philadelphia Phillies sports fans. We we know the history. I think at one point in the book, you say that he's the most booed Philly athlete of all time, if you can try and quantify something like that. Um, and, you know, obviously I work alongside of Mike now, and and I've gotten to know him very well. And I it's still, he still knows that that part of that was his fault and uh you know part of it was just the nature of playing in philadelphia what what was your sense back then when when he'd come in maybe after having a tough game which he didn't you know have all that many back then what was your sense uh how he felt playing in philadelphia because for me i was a kid at the time but i guess in retrospect it was like he almost wasn't comfortable in his own skin uh, I think that's, I think that's a very good way of putting it. I don't think he was, um, he was, uh, he was harder on himself than almost any other great athlete I've ever seen. Um, and you know, part of that drive, that perfectionist part of his personality is a big reason why he was as good as he was. Yeah. I mean, he never took anything for granted. Uh, he, he was, he always, he, I always got the feeling he never really trusted his own ability. Um, and that's why it was it was so interesting when Pete Rose joined the team to yeah. see those two guys in the clubhouse together. You could not have two athletes more opposite 
Pete Rose never for a second doubted his ability. Every time he went to the plate, he felt he was going to get hit. Right. I mean, he never thought there was any pitcher that could get him out. And Mike was just the opposite. You know, as, as great as Mike was, every day on, on driving to the ballpark, Mike, you know, he talked about this. I'd, he'd be thinking the whole drive, who the, who the pitcher was for the other team. And if it was a guy that he knew, he would always talk about the night. He would always think about the nights that the guy got him out. And if it was some kid just brought up from double A, Mike would get all concerned because I've never seen this guy before. Right. You know, I mean, he always found ways of worrying about whether he was going to be good enough that night. And Pete was the total opposite, yeah. which is, I don't think it's any coincidence why when Pete came here um, was when Mike just became an even better player. I mean, that 1980 season when he won the MVP and the MVP of the World Series and everything, um, you know, Pete was in Mike's ear chirping at him all the time, yep. you know, and I still remember one game they were getting ready to play the Pirates in a pretty big game. And Bruce Keeson was pitching for the Pirates and Keeson was, he was an okay pitcher. He used to give the Phillies trouble, but he was certainly no superstar. So Schmidt's in front of his locker and he's like grinding the bat before the game. And he's like, ah, Keeson at sidearm. You know, I really have trouble seeing the ball. And, and Pete goes walking by and Pete says, Hey, what are you worried? You're worried about Bruce Keeson? See, really? You're worried about Bruce Keeson? Hey, Bruce Keeson's down the hall. Don't you think he's worried about pitching to Mike Schmidt? Don't you think he's more worried about pitching to yeah. you than you are batting against him? What are you worried about? Just take the bat, go up there and hit the ball. And Mike was sort of like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I could do that. And, but this happened, I mean, that's just once, but that happened yeah. all the time. Mike was always the guy there that was that convinced Mike that Mike was as great as he was. And it's, you know, and Mike, I know when he went in the hall of fame, when he made his speech, um, he went out of his way to thank Pete and say, you know, I, I think that Pete Rose really helped drive me to become the player that I ultimately became. And, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the relationship he had with the Philadelphia fans, which was certainly troubled. Um, but when I interviewed Mike that day down in Miami, I talked about that, of the fans and how the fans treated him. And he said, you know, he said it was rough and I'm not going to say it wasn't rough and I didn't like it. I didn't appreciate it. Um, he said, but looking back on it now, I think that the Philadelphia fans helped make me the player I am now yeah. because I knew they were going to demand the best out of me every night. And he said, I, I don't know if I would have been the same player or had the same career if I had played somewhere else, as tough as it was, I think playing in Philadelphia helped me achieve the things that I achieved. It was kind of interesting that he came to that realization. Yeah. And, and also, and he said, he said this to, to me before, and I, he said this to many folks, uh, he kind of wishes that he had just enjoyed it a little bit more right. because he wasn't a guy that enjoyed the, the playing the game of baseball for him. It was I got to be the best. And therefore it became a, I don't want to, it became a job in, in a sense that uh, we don't really connect to other athletes, right? For, for him, it was, it was a stressful event each and every night. It was. And you go, um, one of the things that's very interesting is you go through the photo file of Mike Schmidt uh, at the daily news, the inquirer, the bulletin file where it still exists. You go through the, the photo file of Mike Schmidt in each of those papers is like this, okay? How many pictures is he smiling? Very rare. I mean, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of pictures of Mike Schmidt 
playing ball in the dugout, being with his teammates and stuff. You probably count the ones where he looks happy on one hand. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the kind of life it was. It was tough for him. It was really tough for him. Um, but at the end, after he had achieved everything that he achieved, he was in the Hall of Fame. He was recognized as a great player. You know, and he was finally kind of able to relax. Um, he made his peace with all of that. Yes. Uh, yeah. But he looks back at it now and says kind of what he said to you and he said to me was, yeah, I, I wish if I had to do over again, I wish I would allow myself to enjoy it more. But knowing his personality, I don't think you ever would have. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things. We, none of us get a second chance at that kind of thing. No. Um, and, and, you know, but I, I can vouch now he's as, as you know, wonderful of a guy as there is, you know, being around him uh, each and every weekend, uh, you know, when he's in for the broadcast, I, he's such a great guy. He's so uh, easy to, to talk to. And, and it, now he does connect with the fans, which, uh, you know, we see all the time, which is, which is awesome to see. And sometimes yep. it just takes a little while, I guess. Uh, yep. you, you mentioned another guy in that story, uh, and your connection to Richie Ashburn is uh, interesting because you have a picture of it over your over your right shoulder right now. Tell us a little bit about that picture because uh, when we right before we got started, I asked you who that was, and I didn't realize it was you, you and Richie Ashburn there. Yeah, that's me pitching. I'm the <laughs> pitcher, and and Richie Ashburn is at the plate batting against me. Uh, that was the very very first Phillies fantasy camp. It was uh, it was the first time they'd ever done one of those things. Uh, it was just this very novel idea that have been around now for 30, going on 40 years. Right. Again, yeah. That just regular schmoes off the street could could buy a, a ticket to Florida and have a week of baseball playing against big leaguers. Um, that, that was such an interesting idea that the Daily News said, why don't you go down there and do it and write about it? So I did. And uh, at the end of the week, my team, my team won the championship. Uh, and so we got to play the Phillies in the title game that final Saturday at Jack Russell stadium. And I was the, I was the starting pitcher. Uh, and Rich Ashburn, of course, was the leadoff hitter. Yes, so that picture uh, is that at bat. That is, that, that's quite the treasure right there. Uh, what, what an awesome, you know, it's funny. Uh, we're so lucky doing what we do to be connected uh, to sports in general, but you and I in our hometown and, you know, the teams that, to, to get opportunities to do stuff like that every once in a while. Uh, it, those are pinch me moments, aren't they? I mean, even all the oh. things that you've seen and you've done, that's, that's cool. It's just cool. It really is. I mean, like for a kid that grew up in Philadelphia, how many times did I see Rich Ashburn come to the plate, you know, watching on television uh, from the center field camera? Yeah. Uh, and there at Jack Russell Stadium, all of a sudden, I got the same view, except now I'm 60 feet away, 60 feet, six inches, and he's stepping in the box to hit against me. Uh, and it was, it's really funny. I mean, it was a great week and the banter back and forth between the campers and the big leaguers yeah. was fun. We all got along. But they're still competitors. Uh, <laughs> and when it came down, and when it came down to Saturday uh, and the game between our team and the big leaguers, they weren't kidding around. <laughs> no. No. And when and when Rich stepped into the box, he he had full intentions of getting a base hit. I know that. And did he? No. Six, six, six to three. Nice. <laughs> oh man, that is that is awesome. Well, I can tell you to this day because I went to the last uh, fantasy camp uh, that was held was for 2019 before everything shut down. Uh, nothing has changed. 
Nothing has changed. Those guys still want to win that last day, whether it's, uh, you know, nowadays it's the guys like uh, Mickey Morandini and Matt Stairs and Greg Lazinski and, you know, that are still coming out to get, they want to win. They want to win that final day. It's it. And it is fun. It is darn right. They do. Uh, And that's, that uh, was very interesting to me. was seeing how competitive they were. Uh, they're, they're great guys all week. That's fun. We're going, we're all in this together. Hey, a lot of laughs. I'll tell you stories, but it came Saturday and it came the game where it's you against them and they're playing to win. Uh, yeah. It's just, it's just part of their DNA. And the other part of it that I remember from that week was it reminds you how good they are, yes. you know, that you, how good they are and how much better they are than the rest of us. You know, the, so the days out on the field, like watching Tony Taylor show you how to turn a double play. Uh, I mean, Tony Taylor was in his mid fifties. And yet there was a grace about the way he, he, things were so effortless for these guys that I'm just standing there watching. I'm thinking, God, how good were these guys in their twenties? You know, when they were in prime, I mean, it says it gave me a whole new level of appreciation of just the separation between the pros and the rest of us. I mean, that that, until you're actually kind of out there in the middle of it, you don't really see it. But being at that camp for that week really gave me an appreciation of that. And, you know, that was that was to me one of the real fun parts of it was just seeing and reminding myself just how special the pros in every sport are. They are just they're they're a separate class altogether. Yeah. It reminds us why we did what we did for a living mm-hmm. and why they did what they did for a living. Uh, because, yeah, it, even today, you know, I sit and watch BP and watch some of these guys uh, or or actually even more so uh, when they go through their fielding drills. And just, just how you say, it's so effortless and smooth. And then, you know, we've gotten a chance to go out and shag fly balls and stuff like that and, uh, you know, out on the road. And, you know, I played baseball my whole life and was sure. a half-decent player. And I'm a spaz out there in center field. It's like, you know, because it's just, it's just a whole different level, but, uh, but Hey, you know, that's why they're there for sure. Uh, Let me ask you about one other uh, story that you tell um, that you tell about, and that's uh, your, I guess, argument is the best word with uh, Larry Boa. There was a moment uh, where you guys uh, didn't see eye to eye. You're not the first person to get in an argument with Larry Boa. That's for sure. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) Um, yeah, um, it was um, not my finest hour, Murph. Let's put it okay. that way. All right. Um, it was, um, I think you kind of have to view it in context. It was that Phillies team of the late 70s going into 80. They were a, they were a joy to watch, but they were not a joy to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, um, it, was a, it was the toughest clubhouse I ever worked. And I've worked a lot of different clubhouses, but that was the toughest. Um, it was, a, it was just, the only way I can describe the atmosphere in there was hostile. It was, it was a hostile atmosphere in the clubhouse between the press and the players. Um, you had a bunch of um, sort of grouchy players uh, and working the same room with a lot of sort of irreverent, wise guy reporters. Uh, and uh, it was just a combustible kind of atmosphere. And you, and you factor that in with a team that had lost in the playoffs in 76, 77, and 78. Uh, and the storyline that we were all writing was these guys were a bunch of chokers. You know, they got a lot of talent, got a lot of players, got a lot of all-stars, but they can't win. 
you know, they get in October and they choke. We were all writing that story. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and of course the players, you know, understandably were pretty upset about it. Uh, and you have a 162 game season. Right. So you're in the same locker room, sharing the same room, 162 nights, not even counting spring training. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of friction. Uh, and it was there on a daily basis. There was always spats. There was always get, get out of my face. You know, why are you guys doing in here? Get away from me. I'm not talking that kind of stuff, but it built up and it built up and it built up. And we all kind of felt that somewhere along the line here, this thing's going to blow up, you know, somewhere along the line here, something's going to happen. Uh, now, I never thought I would wind up in the middle of it. <laughs> I did. Uh, and it, it didn't start with Larry and me. It started with Larry and another writer, uh, Ray Kelly Jr. from the Courier Post. Yeah. It started with the two of them. Uh, and uh, it got physical. Uh, card table got knocked over. The autographed baseballs were spilled all over the floor. Uh, and I just tried to kind of step in and cool things down. And that's when it turned into Larry and me. Uh, and I wound up, you know, as I recall, Larry Christensen and Ron Reed grabbed Larry and uh, Ruley Carpenter, Kenny Bush, the clubhouse attendant, grabbed me uh, and like shoved me out the door. Um, and it became like this thing, you know, and it became like a national story, uh, which as a reporter, you never want to be in the middle of one of those. Nope. But we were. Uh, and it was pretty tense. I mean, this was October of 78. And the rest of that season, nobody in the Phillies clubhouse would talk to me. Um, except for Tug McGraw. Tug, Tug didn't get, you know, Tug was kind of above all that stuff. You know, he, yeah. he would talk to anybody. Um, but then the next year they signed Pete Rose and um, we went on the Phillies caravan. I went on the Phillies caravan when Pete Rose was going around meeting the Philadelphia fans and Larry was on the bus. And, you know, Larry came up and said, hey, listen, what happened last year? I'm sorry about it. It was all my fault you know, let's just forget it. And I said, fine, done. And it was, and it was done. And we get along fine now. Yeah. Uh, but for the, for the tail end of the last two months of that 78 baseball season. Yeah. It's not a time in my life that I'd care to relive. Yeah. And you know, what's funny. And, and maybe, maybe most people don't know this, but um, you know, it, it happens. It happens in clubhouses and locker rooms and in all four major sports. And I'm sure in, in the, in the others as well. I mean, I've seen my fair share over the years of, sure. of players and reporters going nose to nose. And, and it's because both sides are trying to do their, their best job. And sometimes those are oil and water at, at when things aren't going well. So sure. it happens and, for sure. And you know what, Murph, I, I, I've, and I write this in the book. I actually, this seems like a weird position to take for news, for a press guy. But I think that I think, well, COVID has changed a lot of this. But back in the day, I, I always thought there was too much access in baseball. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't I never saw any reason why the clubhouse had to be open before the game. I never did. After the game, I kind of get it. Sure. But that, that open locker room before the game while the guys are getting ready to play. And, you know, it just why 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 do we have to be in here, you know, hanging out? You know, I you know, let the press be on the field. You know, get a guy in the dugout, maybe, if he wants to sit and talk. Get a guy by the batting cage if he feels like talking. But to have the press, to have the locker room open from like 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock yep. for those two hours while the guys are getting ready for a game, I, I just, I, it just seemed to be counterproductive. I never felt like I got much out of it mm -hmm. from the players. And all it did was it just bugged the players to have these guys kind of around all the time. You know, I just, I just thought it would have been better for everybody to not spend as much time together because – you know, it's, listen, it's one thing to be allowed to go somewhere, which 
and with a press pass, you were, but to, you're not welcome there. Okay? <laughs> so let's, you know, just because you're allowed in the door doesn't mean you're going to be welcome in there. So I just thought it would have been better for everybody if that time didn't exist, but it did. And, you know, now, of course, with COVID, you know, right. we're all back. To the world. It's a totally yeah. different world and who knows. But I, I actually thought that we would have been better off if we had seen less of each other. Yeah, well, I think that's probably absence in the heart growing fonder and all of that. <laughs> yeah, and and not for nothing, but, you know, baseball, 162 games plus spring training every night, you know, the just the grind of covering baseball and playing baseball, that's a real thing. I mean, oh, sure. it's a real thing that, uh, that you know, it, I think also allows for those tensions to build up a little bit. Well, sure, uh, it, sure did with, it, it sure did with that team because so much was expected of them. Yeah. Um, and every year when they got to the playoffs and lost, you know, the frustration level and among the fans, but also within the team got greater and greater. And we, as press, we just kept saying, you know, that they're underachievers, legends right. in their own mind. You know, they, they, they choke in the fall. I mean, that's, you know, if, if I understand from a player standpoint, Al, after a while, you know, you, that would bother you, you know, yeah. be, you, you know and anybody, anybody's going to be bothered by that. So it, it was a cumulative kind of thing that honestly, the signing of Pete Rose changed all that, you know, because there was no more media friendly person than Pete Rose. Right. Uh, and Got he it. just brought, he just brought in a whole different kind of culture to the Phillies clubhouse, a guy that knew how to win, a guy that loved the competition, a guy that was open and welcoming to the press and wasn't bothered by any of that stuff. And I think just bringing Pete in there kind of lowered the thermostat a little bit. Yeah, it's like uh, releasing the pressure cooker a little bit and mm -hmm. <laughs> letting some of that steam out. Uh, yeah, it, it can go a long way. And and obviously, well, so 79, they don't win, but in 1980, they do. And, and really the story I've had, you know, so we have Larry on uh, almost every week here on the podcast uh, reliving that 1980 team uh, season, and we, we go through game by game. And that year, I mean, things didn't go – perfectly smooth for that 1980 team and and they were under the impression and and probably rightly so that if they didn't win in 1980 that they were going to break that entire team up so there was that added pressure for those guys uh certainly you were aware of that as that was happening what do you remember about that because september they finally did start to click in september of 1980 and then they kind of rode that wave to the to the world championship but uh but it, it wasn't easy getting there. It wasn't at no, all. It, no, not not at all. I mean, that was a really um, a really tumultuous year uh, because all of the things that you just said were true. I mean, you had that nucleus of guys that had been together for a decade, yeah. really, uh, come so close, come so close, but had never gotten over the hump. Uh, the field, they had brought Pete Rose in the previous year. That hadn't worked in 79. Now, 80, they're sort of stumbling around in, in, in August. I mean, they're six and a half games out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it looks like they're not going to make a move. Um, Danny Ozark had been replaced by Dallas Green as the manager, which who and he had a totally different approach to things. You know, Danny was kind of the uh, the, the kind of avuncular, everything will be okay, guys. You know, let's just go out there and play. Versus Dallas, who every day was screaming and hollering and calling players out, and naming names and pointing fingers. Totally different thing. Uh, and um, the feeling was, boy, if this thing doesn't work this year, yeah, they're probably going to break this whole thing up and start over again. Um, and in August, it really kind of looks like that's where we're headed with it. I, I remember I changed newspapers in the middle of that season. I went from the Bulletin 
to the Daily News in August of 1980. Uh, and that was my very first, my very first assignment uh, for the Philadelphia Daily News was they sent me to Pittsburgh for a series. It was a Sunday. Uh, and it was the Phillies and the Pirates were playing a doubleheader yes. uh, at Old Three River Stadium. Uh, and in the first game, the Phillies were in the midst of a tailspin. Uh, they had lost on Friday. They had lost on Saturday. Now they're playing a doubleheader on Sunday. Uh, first game of the doubleheader, the Phillies lose 7-1, to one and they're not even in the game. Uh, and Dallas, looking at Dallas in the dugout, you could just see he was steaming. Uh, so game ends. They lose. We go down to the clubhouse. Uh, and the locker room door is shut. And no press is allowed. And Dallas says, no press in here. I got to talk to the team. So then Dallas starts to chew the team out. And we're standing out in the hallway at Three River Stadium. And Dallas was shouting so loud that we're standing in the hallway. And guys had their tape recorders. And they were taping it, standing in the hallway. That's how loud Dallas was. You could hear every word. Uh, and he just went off on this tirade where he just he just – I mean, every other word was F this, F that, uh, calling the team out, you know, saying, you guys think you're a good team, look in the bleeping mirror, blah, blah, blah. It was unbelievable, yeah. scorching the paint off the walls. And and then you know, they, they go on from there, they go on this big winning streak, carry it into September, and they wind up, you know, winning the pennant, going to the playoffs, beating the Astros in a great series. Yeah. And then they go to the World <laughs> Series and finally win it. But that day in Pittsburgh, you would have never imagined that that team was going to go win a World Series because the way they looked and the way the manager was reacting, I wasn't sure they were going to win another game the rest of the summer. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a not, a, it wasn't a love hate relationship with Dallas. They they hated them for, for the most part. They didn't like them. I think you know. I think they've certainly grown to respect him, or they grew to respect him over the years uh, after the championship, but. You talk to those guys on that 80 team, it was not a happy bunch, as you pointed out. No, it was very contentious. Uh, and, and it sort of it's it sort of turns around the whole idea of team chemistry, you know, the team chemistry, you know, everybody loves everybody and they're all pulling on the rope in the same direction. All the yeah. cliches we normally use. That team was the total opposite. <laughs> uh, I mean, nothing but friction between the manager and the players. He didn't like them. They didn't like him. Um, uh, and, and in September that year, uh, he benched three of his regulars. He benched three of his core players. He benched Gary Maddox to play Dell Unser. He benched Bob Boone to play a rookie named Keith Moreland. Keith Moreland. Uh, and he benched Greg Lozinski to play Lonnie Smith. Uh, and it worked. I mean, all of those guys played really well. Team got hot and he started to win. But there was tremendous resentment among the other veteran players that he was benching his core guys. But, you know, bottom line on the whole story is when they get to the postseason, the veterans go back in. Bob Boone had a great series against Houston, helped them win Houston. You know, Greg Lozinski got a couple of game-winning hits. And Larry Boa was brilliant the whole postseason, both offensively and defensively. So when he needed them in the postseason, the young guys kind of got him. Yep. The, postseason, the veterans, their chance, and they came through for him. And then when it's all said and done, they're all in the clubhouse pouring champagne on each other. <laughs> yeah, including Dallas. <laughs> including <laughs> Dallas. Yeah, they might have let the bottle slip and hit him on the head a little bit, but but still, they're pouring the champagne. Uh, yeah, it's it, it really is a great story when you say, and, and the first world championship uh, that this city had seen from their baseball team. 
which is hard to believe. Uh, all right, we're talking to Ray Dinger. Uh, we're, we're almost finished. I, I can't keep him too much longer. He's the author of, of his new book, Finished Business, My 50 Years of Headlines, Heroes, and Heartaches. you got to have heartaches in there if you're talking about Philadelphia. It is, it is really a great read. Uh, but I, I want to ask you about a different story that um, I, I heard you tell this story. I'm not sure if it's in the book or not. I, to be honest, I can't remember. But uh, you're covering... Uh, the 1977 World Series and uh, Reggie Jackson. It's the it's the huh. Yankees and the Dodgers, and and I guess they call this the Stan Hockman story because I've heard you tell this story before, but it always makes me belly laugh. So for folks that haven't heard this story, because you're not just covering Philly sports, you're you're covering national uh, events uh, throughout your career, and this one is a great one. Can you t- tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Okay. Um... Yeah, it was it was the Yankees Dodgers series, uh, and uh, <laughs> Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson was a great player. Uh, could be very difficult to deal with. Very difficult to deal with. Uh, and so that particular World Series, he was he was really in a bad mood. Uh, and two or three times during the series, I tried to go over because he's a Philly guy. I mean, he's yeah. from Philadelphia. He went right. to Cheltenham High School. Um, I went over to do, to, to do stories about him and, uh, oh, he was just miserable, just miserable, uh, bit my head off every single time. Um, so finally we get down towards the end of a couple of days and I've, I've had it with him. I've just had it with him. So the series has now moved from Los Angeles back to New York. Uh, and there's an off day. So I have to write a story. So I just sit down and I just write a story where I just, I just eviscerate Reggie Jackson. <laughs> I mean, I just kill him, kill him. Um, and the paper runs the story eight columns across the top of the sports section. And I'll always remember that the headline was, Oh, Reggie, what a bore you've become was the headline. Okay. So now that's in the paper, the day that the Yankees and the Dodgers are getting ready to play game six of the world series. Um, so I go to the Yankee stadium and I walk in the, the press room and Stan Hockman is there for the great Stan Hockman for the daily news. So Stan says, uh, Wow, that was a pretty tough column you wrote about Reggie. <laughs> Good and I said, oh, Stan, you know, I've had it with that guy. I'm, I'm done with him. So Stan says, Ooh, all right. You know, of course, Stan understood what I should have understood, which is you never dump on Mr. October in October. <laughs> uh, well, that night, any, any baseball historian knows what happened that night. Uh, that's the night that Reggie comes up uh, and you know, first time at bat, first pitch, home run. Second time at bat, first pitch, home run. Third time at bat, first pitch, home run. Uh, so I'm sitting in the press box watching Reggie circle the bases for the third time. And Stan comes walking over and nudges me. And he says, I think he hit the last one with a rolled up bullet. <laughs> 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 which um didn't make me feel any better uh but i got i got a laugh out of it oh, but yeah that's God. uh um the day that the, the night that reggie jackson hit the three home runs in the world series to win the, to win the world series and the mvp uh was the very day that i wrote the story that bryce called him the biggest bore in the history of baseball so hey. uh no, it might have been his finest hour, but it wasn't mine. <laughs> little motivation, that's all. Little motivation. I love that story. And your Stan Hockman impersonation is dead on. Uh, what a wonderful man he was, for sure. Um, all right, before I let you go, uh, let's, let, let, let me take you way back. 
way back because you t- also tell a great story about uh, a time when you were in fifth grade and you wrote an essay uh, for in your class about uh, someone that you admired most. Um, and it's it, to me, it's a very poignant story. It's a it's a wonderful story, but it kind of you know I don't know if it, if it it sets the stage for where your life would take you. But uh, tell us tell us a little bit of that about that as a, a young fifth grader with this writing assignment. Yeah, fifth grade uh, at Our Lady of Peace Catholic Grammar School in Millmont Park, Delaware County. Um, our teacher, Sister Claire Ursula, Sisters of St. Joseph, uh, gave us a class assignment. She said, I want you all to write an essay about the person you most admire. Um, and that became our class project for the day. So we all sat at our desks and wrote our essays. And I wrote mine um, and um, we all turned them in didn't think anything of it. Uh, and two days later, Sister Claire comes in the classroom. She's carrying all of our papers with her. Um, she sits down and she says, I, I want to read you an essay that was written by one of your classmates. Um, and she starts to read it. And I think, wait a minute, that's mine. <laughs> and she reads the whole essay. Uh, and she gets to the end um, and she says, um, this essay was written by Raymond Dittinger. And she looked right at me and she said, Mr. Dittinger, you should be a writer. Um, and you know what, Murph? It was the first time in my life that anybody told me I was good at something. Yeah. Uh, and I can't tell you that at that very moment in fifth grade, I knew what my life was going to become. Um, but it it gave me it gave me sort of a, an impetus to say, hey, you know what? Geez, maybe it is. And from that point on, every time I sat down to write anything, uh, I took a little extra time with it uh, because I thought, you know, maybe this is it. And I really do think that it had a lot to do with uh, the the direction that my life took. I really do. And I probably should mention people always ask when I tell the story. That, people will often ask, who did you write about? Who is the person you most admire? Uh, because in Catholic school, everybody's trying to curry favor with the nun by writing about the Pope. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I wrote about my father. Right. I, I wrote the person I most admire was my father, who was a World War II veteran, uh, who uh, I knew enough about his story. Uh, I'd found the box with his medals. Uh, so I knew enough to know that he was a pretty special guy. So. So the person I most admire wrote about my dad, and who knows that might have been that might have been the jumping off point for uh, for my life in writing. I love that story, and um, you know, I I also went to Catholic grammar school with the Sisters of Saint Joseph's. They could be tough, but uh, but uh, it's nice to hear that uh, that particular uh, sister had had those kind words to say. And I think on behalf of all Philadelphia sports fans, we 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 say thank you to her. Because who knows if that did put you uh, in 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 line to do what you've done over the course of uh, your lifetime? We are all certainly better for it because of uh, of your words that you've put down, and then you know obviously so much more. But it's uh, we all had to start somewhere, and if that's where it started for you, thank you, sister. Because uh, yeah, it's it's been a great it's been a great run, and 
Unfinished Business is the latest book. Again, my 50 years of headlines, heroes, and heartaches. We talked a lot about baseball today, and I think that's, I think, I hope that folks are going to really appreciate, uh, you know, what you um, contributed to this town in terms of baseball. Obviously, we think of you as football, a Hall of Fame football writer, uh, but uh, there's so many great stories. Hockey, boxing, um, basketball, in that book, and if folks haven't read it yet, they really should because it's a terrific read. Ray, thank you so much for uh, spending a couple minutes with us, telling us your glove stories. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we certainly appreciate it, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Always a pleasure, Murph. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. All right. The great Ray Dinger joining us here on Glove Stories with Murph. We'll be back right after this. Hey, everyone. Murph here, and the Park Sportsbook app is the official sportsbook partner of the real Philly sports fan. Bet on it all. Baseball, golf, MMA, and more. Live in-game play-by-play betting lets you bet while you watch. No better way to bet right now than the Parks Sportsbook app. The only sportsbook app backed by the number one casino in Pennsylvania and the only one I recommend. No one does live in-game play-by-play betting better. Bet the money line as it changes during the game on the Park Sportsbook app. Plus, bet on individual player performances. In baseball, you can bet on hits, home runs, and pitcher strikeouts every inning. How about golf? You can bet on match winners, bet on leaders after rounds, and more. New customers sign up right now and get your first bet risk-free up to $500. Just download the app or click parkscasino.com forward slash PA and use promo code ACTION. Do it now. Your first bet risk-free up to $500. Just download the app or click parkscasino.com forward slash PA and use that promo code ACTION. The website has all the details. Get game previews, podcasts, and more on Twitter at Parks Sportsbook. You must be 21 and in Pennsylvania. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Glove Stories with Murph is brought to you by Red Robin. Whether you're hungry for a juicy gourmet burger with bottomless steak fries and an ice cold beer, or a crispy chicken tender salad and freckled lemonade. Whatever you crave, there's something for everyone at Red Robin. So dine in or order curbside to go, delivery or catering. Order online now at order.redrobinpa.com. And welcome back to Glove Stories with Murph, presented by the Parks Casino Sportsbook app and Red Robin. Good to have you here with us, and always good to welcome in Charlie Manuel, the manager of the 2008 World Champion Philadelphia Phillies. And uh, as we do each and every week, we relive one of those magical seasons, whether it be 1980 or 2008. We're doing 2008 today. Charlie, good to see you. Good to see you, Murph. Hey, we are uh, at the point in the 08 season. We're late in August now. That's where we have arrived, and uh, things are getting uh, pretty exciting in Philadelphia as you guys make your way towards the postseason for the second consecutive season. And uh, we're going to relive. We're going to go back to Sunday, August 24th, 2008. The team was home versus the Dodgers. The Dodgers coming in at 65 and 65. You guys were sitting at 71 and 59. Uh, you had won five of your last six ball games, including the first two against the Dodgers in this uh, four game series. All right. It was a wraparound series. Sunday night baseball. I know you can picture this at Citizens Bank Park, game three of this series. And that place was rocking, I'm sure. Uh, packed house, 44, 43,000 people in the house. What do you remember about that? I remember. Uh... 
basically I, I can remember this game, you know, like the, uh, I had a hard time getting to August 24th, but at the same time, I remember the game well. And uh, the Dodgers coming in was always big. When the yeah. Dodgers draw a lot of people on the road, they always every year seemed like they was in com, uh, contention to for their division or win something. And this team that they bought in there with Darcy Parr, Kent, and Manny Ramirez, uh, Ether, Kemp, all these players, they offensively, they were just as good as anybody in baseball. Yeah. And uh, they had a good pitching staff and they had a well, and, and of course they was well managed. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you had battled them, uh, you know, throughout the season and this was a team that you think, all right, might make meet them in the postseason as well. So obviously a big series for you guys. You, uh, it was Hiroki Kuroda on the mound for the Dodgers, Joe Blanton on the mound for you. You guys were one half game behind the New York Mets coming into this game and the Dodgers, they got to Joe Blanton early in this one, uh, in the first, uh, one out, a walk followed by a single by Jeff Kent and a hit batsman, Manny Ramirez, loaded the bases. James Loney singled, but only one run scored at that point. It was one nothing. Blanton got the next batter to strike out to end the inning. So obviously that situation could have been a lot worse. Good job by Joe to get the job done there. Yeah, without a doubt, you know, like uh, uh, he, he got the next two guys out with the bases loaded. And if they get one more hit, they put a quick, crooked number up. And then if they get a... Uh, if something happens and they get a couple more, well, then, then we're five, six runs down. And he kept us right there at one run, which is big. It's, it's, that's starting the game is very big. And yeah. he did a good job. You know, I want to talk a little bit about Joe Blanton. He was making his uh, seventh start since being traded over to the team at this point. And uh, we all know the, the big impact he had uh, for the rest of the season. But, uh, you know, when he came in, it was one of those deadline deals that you thought to yourself, okay, you know, maybe this guy can help. But he was so much more than that for your 08 team, wasn't he? Yeah, you know, Murph, when we, when we first got Joe, uh, you know, like uh, we, we, we liked his demeanor, first of all, you know, like his yeah. coolness on the mount, things like that. But at the same time, he was a guy that we – uh, that Pat Gillick used to tell me all the time, hey, look, this guy can give us six innings and, and he can take us in. A, he's capable of taking us a little deeper in the game, seventh inning. And he says uh, he, he likes to pitch and, uh, you know, like he's a fit on our team because with our bullpen and our uh, offense the way it is, you know, like uh, we, this guy right here can get us in, uh, in, into the latter part of the game. And, uh, and he was, you know, what, Joe, uh, Joe Blanton was a very quiet guy. Didn't yeah. say, you know, like all he did, he just, he just wanted you to give him the ball. And, you know, like, and uh, he, he was very coachable, but at the same time, he wanted to go out there and pitch the way he uh, knew how to pitch. And uh, to me, that was the, one of the biggest things about him. And uh, uh, you could, uh, you could always tell when Joe was uh, getting there as far as having to take him out of the game, you know, like, uh, the, the batters would tell you, and, and but also Joe would uh, uh, tell you with his stuff, you know, like his, his command and stuff. So he was very good for our team. He, he was very good in our clubhouse, and he was a chemistry guy. Yeah, absolutely. And Pat Gillick, he always had a knack uh, at the trade deadline, no matter where he was, whether it be in Philadelphia or Toronto or elsewhere, uh, to, to bring those kinds of guys in that plug some holes and did exactly what you need to get you over the hump. Joe Blanton certainly was one of those guys. All right. The Phillies would get on the board in the fifth. Carlos Ruiz would single 
Joe Blanton sacrificed in the second. Rollins struck out, but then Chase Utley singled the center. That scored the run. We're all tied up at 1-1. And again, Blanton getting the job done at the plate. Uh, I know you love home runs. We all love home runs. But a great sacrifice from your pitcher, that's a big play in a baseball game, is it not? That, that's one of our fundamentals when we, with the, when we go to spring training. And every day, uh, I would say, I shouldn't say every day because that wouldn't be right, but about, I would say five days a week, Jimmy Williams would always have the guys down there bunting either on the field or in the cage. And, you know, like, and we emphasize our pitchers bunting, you know, like, and uh, it's kind of, kind of like Roy Holiday when he joined us that one, uh, when he first joined us, we, we even uh, taught him how to bunt and, he, and Jimmy Williams had to do a good job, but yeah, that, <laughs> Uh, that is all part of the game and moving runners for a pitcher is very big. And it also it helps keep him in the game too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, side note, an interesting question. I, I've never asked you this and I, and I'm interested to get your thoughts real quick. Uh, the way the rules are right now uh, with the runner in, in extra innings runner on second as a manager, would you always sacrifice that guy over? Would it depend on who was at the plate and who was coming up? How would you work that? I would say for me, it would depend on who's coming, uh, who's at the plate. And uh, as far as this team that we're talking about, Jimmy Rollins and uh, 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 Victorino, Utley and all these guys, uh, I would pick and choose between, of course, down toward the bottom of the lineup would probably more likely would always bunt right. uh, Felice and Chooch. But at the same time, too, uh, even, even the guys that's capable of hitting the ball out of the ballpark, you know, like at times, you know, like I would probably bunt, uh, uh, button and get to run over the third and, and actually let one of my big, big hitters, you know, like knock him in. But yeah, that, yeah. I mean, that right there is how we play. I mean, that and that is the part that I like about baseball. Yeah. Yeah. Because it takes some brains, too. I, I like it, too. All right. The bullpen would get into a little trouble in the seventh inning. So Joe Blanton out of the game. J.C. Romero allowing uh, two base runners with one out. So then you bring in Ryan Madsen, who uncorks a wild pitch and and Jeff Kent gets a base hit. RBI, it's 2-1 Dodgers, just like that. You know, again, the Dodgers, a really good baseball team and, and taking advantage of mistakes. And when you give the give the Dodgers a chance to, to stay in a ball game, you know, you're, you're giving them a chance to win, right? Give them a chance to win, definitely giving the Dodgers a chance to win. And, uh, uh, you know, like when, when Madsen come in and cork a wild pitch, you know, like that's all, uh, that's, up, that's up to our bullpen to definitely hold them there. Yeah, and you know, like, and I, I think that w that became the strength of our bullpen. You know, like, uh, especially in those years where we had the big teams. Yeah, yeah, it was rare for the bullpen. JC and and Ryan were so good for you all season long. Every once in a while, they're going to uncork a wild pitch. It's going to happen. So then it becomes incumbent of the rest of the team to pick up your bullpen because they've been picking up everybody all season long. So that's exactly uh, how this one plays out. Once again, we head to the bottom of the ninth. And you're trailing, but our pal Jonathan Broxton is coming in, and uh, we learned to love watching Jonathan Broxton come into the games. Uh, this team gets to work. Shane Victorino leads off with a single. Eric Bruntlett sacrifices him to second base. Jason Worth strikes out, but then Andy Tracy worked a walk, and Pedro Feliz singled home Victorino, all tied up, headed to extra innings. This might have been the beginning of that time where you guys got in Broxton's head and stayed there for a couple of years, right? Yeah, I think uh, you. Yeah, I think uh, closers a lot of times. If you when you follow in the game, uh, 
you know, like a team that definitely uh, kind of earlier in their career or something, you're like when they do something against that pitcher or something, he, he, he remembers that. Sure. And, yeah. and I think that he remembers that, you know, like when he's on the mount and you know, like, and he's thinking, and maybe in his mind, he's thinking about, I don't want to give it up and I don't want to give it up. And all of a sudden to me, like that turns into a big negative and, and you do leave a ball right in the middle of the plate or you make a mistake. And that's all part of the game. And whether yeah. whether it went that way, I don't know. But that's kind of what it, uh, after the history of of our teams playing against rocks, and that kind of, that's kind of how it went. Yes. Yeah, it, it certainly seems that way. <laughs> I think if you asked him if he's being honest, he would say he was thinking a little bit when he was on the mound against the Phillies, for sure. Yeah. All right. So Chad Durbin would come in and he would pitch the tenth and the 11th inning and get you through unscathed. And again, you talk about a makeup guy, a guy that was great in the clubhouse. Chad Durbin was such a good personality and a really good pitcher for you guys. Yeah, right. He's a tremendous pitcher for us. He, he is a guy that come in. He never showed a lot of emotions on the mound. He kept his cool. Mm -hmm. And like in this game here, he takes his two, two innings. And, you like it. and th those two innings are real big innings. And you're know, like, and there again, you like that just shows the strength of our bullpen. But at the same time, it, you're like, it tells me that the Durbin can pitch, you know, like when the game's on the line yeah. and yeah. Uh, that's exactly, uh, you know, like what happens. And, but at the same time too, good teams, uh, uh, good, uh, good teams win these games. And, and, and Durbin definitely was a played a part in it. Yeah. Play, and, play, and, play and your team, at the, yeah. And your team at this point was proving time and time again, that this was a good baseball team that, you know, you know, I remember back then saying, Hey, good teams win games like this. And this team keeps winning games like this. This must be a pretty good team. Right. And that, and that's the way it works. So, all right. Bottom of the 11th, Shane Victorino leads off with a double Chris coast works a walk. Jason worth grounds out, but grounds out to the right side. So the runners advance the second and third good baseball right there. You then use Cole Hamels as a pinch hitter. He pops up the second, uh, but with two outs, Pedro Feliz comes in, and hits a three-run home run, just the way you like it, Charlie. Game over. Uh, you used 21 players in this game. 21 players played in this particular game. That's a playoff atmosphere, and that probably felt like a playoff game for you guys, right? I, I remember that well. You like the, uh, the thing I got to say about that, we used 21 players, and uh, that's a lot. Back then, that was a lot of players. Yeah. And actually, probably uh, Pedro Felice's three-run homers uh, – uh, kind of took the way you call it, it, it took the icing off the cake as far as uh, someone playing 21 players and making mistakes along the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes it makes it a lot easier to sleep that night, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's how I kind of look at Pedro's home run there. Yeah, well, it was uh, it was an exciting game for sure. It's Citizens Bank Park, South Philadelphia was rocking, uh, and and it was exciting because here you were, you had just won now the third straight game over the Los Angeles Dodgers. You would end up sweeping the series against the Dodgers four straight, uh, and you were at the end of this one and a half games out uh, behind the New York uh, the in the NL East behind the New York Mets. They're still not quite there yet but things were trending in the right direction and uh, you know, about five more weeks to play in the 08 season. Exactly. I, you know, like that's a, to me, I, uh, I remember this game real well. And uh, you know, at the end of, I think of uh, Felice's three run Homer. And, and when I'm sitting here today, I think, I think of the hits that he used to get to really play big parts in the game. And he would, he, he kind of, he was kind of, he played kind of under the radar 
as far as his hitting goes. You know, like he used to definitely get a big hit win games for you. And his offensive stats, you know, like uh, in the clutch, I, you know, like I got, I got to think that he that he got overlooked a little bit from his offensive talent. Yeah, yeah. Here's a guy in the bottom of your lineup, seven, eight, uh, normally batting seventh or eighth. Uh, terrific glove. We all know what he was able to do in the field. But, but yeah, I agree with you. That lineup was was just so deep. There were no easy outs in that lineup from top to bottom. And you know that's that's what a great team looks like. And that certainly right. is what I had no eight. Well, I'll tell you what. So you sweep the four game series with the Dodgers. Uh, you played them again on Monday, and then guess who's coming to town? The New York Mets are up next. <laughs> head-to-head, top of the NL East, and we're going to discuss that the next time you and I get together uh, right here on Glove Stories. Charlie, good to see you. Good to see you, Murph. Glove Stories with Murph is brought to you by Red Robin. Whether you're hungry for a juicy gourmet burger with bottomless steak fries and an ice-cold beer or a crispy chicken tender salad and freckled lemonade, whatever you crave, there's something for everyone at Red Robin. So dine in or order curbside to go, delivery or catering. Order online now at order.redrobinpa.com. Glove Stories with Murph is presented by Parks Casino Sportsbook app. New users download an app store or click parkscasino.com slash PA and use the promo code MONEY for first bet risk-free up to $500. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Glove Stories with Murph is presented by Parks Casino Sportsbook app and Red Robin and is a production of SBC Media Partners. The engineer for Glove Stories is Chad Evans. Cindy Webster is our marketing and guest relations director, and our executive producer is Roger Haddon. Whether you are watching us on YouTube or downloading the podcast from one of our major podcast providers like Apple, Google, or Spotify, make sure to hit like and subscribe so that we can let you know when a new episode of Glove Stories is available. We'll release new episodes weekly throughout the 2021 Major League Baseball season.